Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, I love Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, because it really forces us to consider Christmas in light of the cross. You know, it's the cross that brings the real significance to Christmas. Phil Riken brings this idea to life when he writes, The death of Christ makes some people uncomfortable, including some people who call themselves Christians. In the spring of 1999, for example, a Lutheran pastor in Germany gained notoriety by arguing that the manger and not the cross should be the symbol of Christianity. The cross is too threatening. It certainly is not as inviting as baby Jesus asleep on the hay. Christ had to be born before he could die, of course. There could be no Easter without Christmas. But God the Son was born of the Virgin in order to die on the cross. Christianity is not a religion of stable and straw. It is a religion of thorns and nails, wood and blood. The incarnation cannot save us without the crucifixion. Christ did not redeem us by his life alone. He redeemed us through his death. End quote. So you see... At just the right time, God sent just the right person with just the right mission. Let's take those statements one at a time here. At just the right time, Paul says in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. The first Christmas was the fullness of time, in really in every sense of the word, wasn't it? It was the fullness of time, like a, like a fruit on a tree, finally ready to be plucked and enjoyed. The world was just ripe for the coming of Christ. God prepared the world politically. Think about it. Through Rome and and the so-called Pax Romana, that is the the peace of Rome, God really united the world in, in sort of a worldly peace and brought a worldly stability And I've often marveled at the fact that Christ lived and then was ultimately crucified underneath Roman authority and Jewish authority, under both Gentile authority and Jewish authority. We all were responsible for crucifying him. It's just the right time. God prepared the world economically. You know, the Romans were, were so famous for the roads that they built leading out of Rome, these big highways leading in all directions out of Rome. And they were meant to, you know, provide worldly commerce and uh, a pathway for conquest. But they would, in actuality, become the highways for the gospel to spread throughout the world. God prepared the world culturally. You know, Greek was sort of like English is today. Most people could speak it a little bit, right? And that, God prepared the world in such a way that 
The New Testament could be written down in a language that would quickly cross cultural lines. God prepared the world religiously, the the paganism and emperor worship and the false messiahs and the corrupt and hypocritical priests, I think left the world just hungry for what is, true, what is true and what is uh, the, the true Christ, the true sa- Savior to come into the world. But most of all, I think God prepared the world theologically. David Platt said it well. He said, everything that was going on in the Old Testament was leading up to this point. The promise of Abraham had been given. The law of Moses had done its work to drive men to anticipate Christ. Over 300 prophecies had been given. All of it aimed toward this time. Christmas didn't just happen. It was the culmination of a plan devised in the eternal counsel of God before the creation of the world. I mean, haven't we seen this in our study of Genesis? If we took nothing else away from our study of Genesis this past year, didn't we see that that from the very first few moments of the fall, that God was there and he was promising the coming of, of the Savior, right? Genesis 3.15, uh, God spoke of, of the seed of the woman who would one day come and bruise uh, the head, crush the head of the, the seed of the serpent, right? God promised Jesus from the, from the earliest few moments of the book of Genesis, and we saw again God's mercy and his grace and his patience and his forbearance and his wisdom in, in allowing the history of the world to unfold the way that it did. I mean, we saw, if nothing else, that God's sovereign plan was unfolding, albeit rather slowly from our perspective. But God was waiting for just the right time. When Christ stepped onto the, the stage of human history, we had so much context to understand not only who he was, but who we were and how much we needed him to come. So at, at just the right time, God sent just the right person. Paul says here that God sent forth his son. <laughs> What does it mean that he sent forth into the world his son? It means that he existed before he was born. Jesus existed before he was born. It it points to a, a truth that's supported throughout Scripture that Jesus was not just a man. Jesus was and is God. But Paul doesn't stop there. Not only did God send forth his son from all eternity, but it says he sent forth his son born of a woman. Born of woman. And so if his being sent forth emphasized his deity, then in the next breath here, Paul's emphasizing that being born of a a woman emphasizes his humanity. You know, normally in the Bible, you speak of, of being born of a father. Right? We, we just looked at a bunch of genealogies in the book of Genesis this past year. You don't see many mothers listed in those genealogies. But here Paul speaks of Christ being born of a woman. I think it, it points to 
uh, first and foremost, the virgin birth. Right? God sent, supernaturally sent his son into the womb of a virgin named Mary. And, and when Mary was given this news that she would bear a son, she pushed back on that. She said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I think Paul also is, is by speaking of, of God's Son being born of woman, is pointing back ultimately to Genesis 3.15 that we just studied this year, that promised seed of a woman that would come. Christ fulfills that. You know, the, the early church fathers emphasized that Christ became what he was not without ever ceasing to be what he was. It's a, it's a wonderful statement to write down and to ponder this Christmas. Christ became what he was not without ever ceasing to be what he was. What that means is that there came a moment in time when, when God the Son became what he was not previously. He became a man. Yet, the wonder of it all is that he never ceased to be what he was from all eternity. The almighty creator, creator eternal God. So, at just the right time, God sent just the right person, Jesus, who alone is both God and man, and he sent him with just the right mission. Paul goes on to, to say that he, the, the God-man, Jesus, was born, also born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. His mission was to redeem, that we might be adopted as sons. That's the, the why of Christmas. You know, so often at Christmas time we, we marvel that he came, and we should. But Paul doesn't let us stay there. He pushes us on to why he came. He came with just the right mission. He came to redeem us, that we might actually be adopted as sons. I've had several friends over the years who I've had the privilege of walking alongside of as they went through the process of adopting a child. I've witnessed that process of, of walking through the, the legalities and the, and the logistics of adoption. And I think from watching my friends go through that, I understand a little bit, even though I, you know, I don't have the kind of experience of actually going through it myself, but just from watching them, I can understand a little bit why they would describe that process of adoption almost like a pregnancy in and of itself. Have you ever heard that? Someone who's going through the process of adoption, they're like, man, this process of waiting and hoping and working and applying for this, it, it's almost like a very similar process to the, that process of pregnancy as you're waiting for your child to be born. Adoption is a, a long, expensive, difficult process full of waiting, hopes and dreams and anxieties. And adoptive parents go to great lengths to be able to adopt a child, don't they? 
But no one, and I mean no one, has gone through a more lengthy process or paid a higher price than God did in order to adopt us as his own. Think about it. God had to give up his son in order to make us his sons. That's the price of our adoption. God had to send forth his son into the world, give up his son in order to adopt us as sons. What a process of adoption. It's what Christmas is about. A pastor by the name of Todd Wilson, who is also an adoptive father, he had similar thoughts uh, as he was adopting his own children. He adopted twins from Ethiopia, and he wrote this. Imagine if my wife and I would, would have sent our firstborn son, Ezra, to Ethiopia to adopt our twins for us. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Having to send your firstborn son to Ethiopia to adopt the children that you're planning on adopting. And just imagine if we knew the only way we were going to be able to adopt them was to let Ezra be publicly executed while in Ethiopia. What if the only way to adopt our twins was to sacrifice our firstborn son? If that's precisely what the father did in sending the son into the world and onto the cross so that we might receive adoption as sons. Would you adopt if it meant that you had to pay that high of a price? God did. Let's press this even a little bit further. What if the child you were adopting came with some baggage? Another pastor, theologian, who's also an adoptive father by the name of Russell Moore, he writes this. Imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child and as you meet with the social worker in the last stages of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a, a little family history. The boy's father, grand, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Russell Moore says, think for a minute. Would you want this child? And if you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife on the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your daughter with the lights out? That problematic 12-year-old with such baggage is probably not a likely adoption candidate in your household, right? And would you adopt that child? Well, the Bible tells us that we are a lot like that 12-year-old child in the eyes of God. Ephesians chapter 2 calls us dead in our trespasses and sins, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, not your ideal adoption candidates. Yet God sent forth his son for this very purpose. He did this for undesirable adoption candidates 
like you and like me. He redeemed us. He, he bought us back, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but he redeemed us. He paid the price of our redemption with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a, a, a lamb without blemish or spot. He adopted us, bringing us all the way into his arms as sons. He didn't just forgive us of our sins. He didn't just justify us and, and blot out our iniquities. He brought us all the way into his arms and adopted us as his sons. And by the way, when Paul is speaking here of us being adopted as sons, he's not being chauvinistic here, leaving out daughters. Right? The reason he uses this term sons is because he's in a broader discussion here, he's talking about a son who reaches a certain age where he's no longer under certain managers and tutors in, in the household, but he actually comes of age and receives his inheritance. And that's what all of us are like. We are adopted as sons who have with that adoption a, an inheritance in Christ. God adopts us. He sends forth his spirit into our hearts so that we're no longer slaves but sons. And he says, if we are sons, then we are heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. I love the Christmas story. And I hope this Christmas that you, you read it again, that you reread it and that you study it and that you get lost in all of its glorious details. But as you ponder the Christmas story this Christmas, don't forget to, to step back and see Christmas in light of the cross. I don't think Jesus would want us to lose sight of the cross as we consider his coming at Christmas. I think for all the, the peaceful and sentimental moments that Christmas brings, the real peace and the, the real sentiment flows out of not just that he came, but why he came. Galatians reminds us at just the right time, God sent forth just the right person with just the right mission to redeem us and adopt us as sons and heirs. Are you familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters? I see a lot of you nodding your heads. If, if you're not, you might want to get your hands on a, a copy of this and read it. It's a very creative uh, way to teach some spiritual truths. This book is a, a collection of letters from an experienced demon named Screwtape, to his inexperienced nephew, Wormwood. And it, it, don't worry, it's fictitious. Right? He, he's giving his nephew all kinds of advice about how to best tempt uh, his patient. And he warns about the enemy, which, who, who is the enemy of a demon? God, right? So as you're reading it, you have to kind of put yourself in that, that mind frame. You say, why would you want to read that? Well, I think the, the point of the, the writing and the, the reading of this is that we don't want to be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. 
And so these fictitious letters have a, a unique way of casting light on the schemes of the devil. Well, by chance, I came across a lost screw tape letter just this week. And I'm not at liberty to say how the correspondence I'm about to read to you fell into my hands. But I will say you can find the letter online in its entirety, uh, posted there by a man named Justin Wayne Scott. This lost screw tape letter was dated in December, but the year is unknown. My dear Wormwood, I received your latest letter in which you expressed a number of fears over your patient's celebration of those seasons of the year that Christians call Advent and Christmas, and to which our Father below only refers to, usually in disgust, as the invasion. So since you asked how to best handle this current, and I believe you called it dreaded situation, let me offer three heinous suggestions that even, though in, even those in, in hell's high command would not question. First, try keeping the patient sufficiently distracted. This is important, Wormwood, because the enemy wants him to ponder and meditate on that awful truth. I shudder to even write it. The incarnation. You must do all you can to prevent this from happening. And distraction is one of your, your deadliest weapons during these seasons. So keep him overly committed to all sorts of things. Yes, even good things. Make sure he goes to every party and feels obligated to go out and purchase a gift for each one. Make sure he attends concerts and dinners and charity events. If his calendar isn't full, you've failed. Exhaust him. Tire him out in any way you can. Keep him going and doing. And if that doesn't work, distract him with entertainment and other mindless tricks. Just don't give him time and space to consider what these seasons are actually meant to celebrate. If that doesn't work for you, then try keeping his celebrations merely sentimental. It's no use trying to keep him from celebrating these seasons entirely. That simply will not work. But if you can make them nothing more than sentimental and nostalgic then you will have prevented him from reflecting on the real meaning of the enemy's actions. So by all means, let him sing and be merry, but make sure he only sings and reflects on things like sleigh rides and silver bells and snowfall and decorations and family gatherings, things every one of his fellow creatures can sing about and celebrate. And if you can make him shed a sentimental tear while he sings about them, even better. Those kinds of songs are quite harmless in the eyes of hell. What he must be kept from singing, however, are all those carols that make hell tremble because they are filled with truths we can't deny. Truths about who the enemy is and what he has done to triumph over our Father below. When your patient's celebration begins to include such songs or reflection on such themes, you are in real and serious danger. Even so, you are not without one last method of attack. If all else fails... Try keeping the enemy's story, what we call the bad news, limited to the invasion. It's bad enough that your patient thinks of this at all, but realize it could be worse. So if you foolishly allow him to focus his attention on the invasion, then at least be sure to let the story go no farther in his mind. All those bipeds the enemy has created seem to love babies, so make him think the bad news is nothing more than a story about a baby 
something cute and sweet but not serious and significant. Find a way to keep the story in Bethlehem. You can even let him keep his manger scenes with all the animals present. Just let it go no farther. Make sure he keeps thinking of the enemy only as a child. Don't let him think about the enemy as a man or what he did to some of our fiendish friends or how he humiliated all of hell when he rose again. You can seed the manger in your patient's thinking so long as you divorce it from the cross and the empty tomb. But once he begins to recognize there's more to the story of the bad news than just the invasion, especially if he thinks about the great defeat, then he will turn in gratitude to the enemy. And I sincerely hope for your sake especially this does not happen. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. You know, the forces of darkness would love nothing better than for all of us to hurry ourselves through the Christmas season. They'd love for us to to be so busy that we never once slow down and ponder and meditate on the true meaning of Christmas. And so slow down. Take some time. This is the week of Christmas. Slow down and and think about the, the Christmas story. Read it in your Bibles. And think deeply and prayerfully about what God has done for us. And when you slow down to ponder the meaning of Christmas, keep in mind that there's more to Christmas than mere sentimentality. You know, Christmas songs promise us this sentimentality in spadefuls, doesn't it? I was thinking about that song, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear voices singing, Let's be jolly, deck the halls with boughs of holly. There's nothing wrong with sentimentality. I'm as sentimental as the the next guy. Uh, But... You know, Christmas means so much more to us than just mere sentimentality. I hope you hunger for more than just a a vapid sentiment that is here today and the day after Christmas it's gone. Right? Don't settle for that. Perhaps you, you, you say, well, don't worry about me being sentimental. I feel numb. I feel numb to it all. I've had people say to me, and I've felt this way at times too, that, you know, Pastor Stan, to be honest, I I feel unaffected by the Christmas story. It's all so familiar. I've heard it hundreds of times. That's why I, I would say to you to reconnect the fact that Christ came with why he came for you. For example, what we read in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Galatians, I'm used to saying Genesis. <laughs> Galatians chapter 4. The way Paul so, so adeptly gives us just a summary of all that Christ has done and all the, all the benefits of, of what we have in Christ. View Christmas in light of the cross. You know, I know that the point of celebrating Christmas is to focus on on the fact that he came, you know, the great truths of the incarnation, the condescension of his glory, the veiling of his majesty, the almighty wrapped up in swaddling cloths. It's a perfect time of year to consider these things, but let's not, even at Christmas, separate those wonderful truths from why he came. 
He came to redeem us, to adopt us, to make us heirs of all things. So this Christmas, the greatest gift that you can give is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest gift that you can give to someone else. You say, Pastor Stan, I always do that. I don't I don't just get sentimental. I sit down and I study the word and I soak in the Christmas story and I remind myself of why Jesus came. Well, let, me, let me challenge you to, to seize upon this time of year to give that understanding away to someone else. Right? This time of year, uh, probably above any other time of the year, we can get away with going there, Right? As we gaze upon a a nativity scene, we can talk about what Christmas really means. We can talk about our Savior. We have a natural way to to lead into the gospel. Seize upon that. This week, as you're visiting with friends and family and neighbors, go there. Seek to give your, your understanding of Jesus Christ away. Let's not just make this connection in in our own hearts. Let's use this as an excuse to talk about the cross. Jesus is the greatest gift you can give anyone this Christmas. And in closing, the, the flip side of that statement is also true. Jesus is the greatest gift that you can receive. There is no greater gift you can receive this Christmas than Jesus. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does Ephesians 2.8 and 9 remind us as well? It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. One thing I I do love about the, the custom of exchanging gifts is it's such a wonderful picture of what God has done for us. How offensive is it when someone gives you a gift if you try to pay them back for it? Reach into your wallet and say, hey, this is a great gift. I know it cost you a lot of money. Here, let me pay you back. So, so offensive. You can't earn a gift. All you can do is receive it. The Bible tells us that the way that we receive this gift is by repenting of our sins and instead turning in faith to the Lord and trusting in Him. And when you do, He not only redeems you and wipes away your sins, He adopts you as His very own. Let's pray.